please turn to Psalm 100 and your large print sheets, <clears throat> but it's also right in the middle of the Bible, 136 Psalm, starting on page 843 and <clears throat> going through to 844. The 136th Psalm, <clears throat> pardon me. Psalm 136, listen children, listen, this is the word of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. For his mercy endures forever. Lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him alone, to him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever and brought out Israel from among them. For his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. For his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his mercy endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his mercy endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. For his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings. For his mercy endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites. For his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. For his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage. For his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. For his mercy endures forever. He remembered us in our lowly state. For his mercy endures forever and rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever, who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Well, you almost feel like just sitting down after that. Almost preaches itself, doesn't it?
Well, actually, not only are we going to have one sermon, you see down there it says part one. We're not going to have two sermons. We're not going to have three sermons. We're not going to have four sermons. We're going to have five sermons on Psalm 136 over the next five weeks starting today. Five messages on this great, what's called the great Hallel, Hallel, like hallelujah, this great Hallel, Psalm 136. Because here, in the 136th Psalm, we see that the psalmist gives us abundant reason for thanksgiving. The psalmist gives us abundant reason for thanksgiving. Now, children, we often think of the fourth week in November in terms of thanksgiving. And uh, this has been a long-standing custom in our country, starting actually, interestingly, although it was not a, a, an annual event, but starting with George Washington, the first president under our current constitution, way back in 1789. In 1789, he said, it is, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal special favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peacefully to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now therefore, he said, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being, God, who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks, for his kind care and protection of the people of this country prior to their becoming a nation, before we had the United States, for the mercies and favorable interpositions of his providence in terms of the late war, that is to say the war for American independence, for the great degree of peace, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we've been able to establish constitutions of government. So not just national constitution, but state. Peaceful and rational manner in which we've been able to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness. And particularly the national one now lately instituted. For the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, we're now free. And the means we have of acquiring and spreading useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to give us. That was George Washington in 1789, first president of these United States. And so this has been a long-standing policy, hasn't it? Long-standing custom in our country, maybe not on an annual basis, not uh, until uh, really the, uh, uh, the 1860s was it on an annual or perennial basis, but nevertheless, this idea of Thanksgiving goes back a long time. Of course, we can also, we can also say, we can also go back to the pilgrims. Remember, children, I, we, we did the uh, video on the Mayflower last year. Remember that? And the coming of the pilgrims and the, uh, not technically the first Thanksgiving on these shores, but nevertheless, the one that we often look to. 
Properly speaking, a day of thanksgiving should be an occasional matter, matter, and that was certainly the case in 1621, 400 years ago this year, with the pilgrims and their Indian friends. And more than that, of course, we know we are always to give thanks, and we are to live a life of thanksgiving. And so, uh, but nevertheless, this time of year is the time that we usually think about Thanksgiving because of this being a national holiday. Well, so in that context, then, I wanted to present this message on Psalm 136, or this series of messages, actually. As we look at the 136th Psalm, we see that there's a context, namely Psalm 135, the 135th Psalm, uh, which has a lot of parallels, interestingly, also with its theme of praise, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise the O you servants of the Lord, and so forth. And so it comes in a context within the Psalter, following on Psalm 135. Now there's an historical usage to the words that we have here. If you look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Second is page 594 in your pew Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses uh, 3 through 6. This is the dedication of the temple by Solomon. And all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, children, that's, you just heard us read that. We just heard us sing that, that very phrase, that refrain, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 4, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests attended to their services, the Levites also, the instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. And since you're in 2 Chronicles, turn over to chapter 20, chapter 20 and verse 21. This is with regard to Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat, verse 21 it reads, and when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. It certainly appears that Psalm 136 was written by King David. It doesn't specify that uh, in our text, but it would make a lot of sense because most of the Psalms were written by David, and certainly we see that theme here after the life of David in terms of Solomon and Jehoshaphat. Now, Psalm 136, of course, has a unique structure in the Psalter with its refrain. We don't see this a lot, this refrain, this chorus almost, where it says, for his mercy endures forever. And that word mercy is an interesting word. It's 
chesed, or actually, you see in the bulletin, I spelled it C-H-E-S-E-D, because actually there's a sound at the beginning. It's chesed, chesed. It's almost, almost like a C-H sound. And this word for mercy is interpreted in a variety of ways. It can mean kindness, it can mean mercy, it can mean covenant faithfulness. It's used in a, in a variety of uh, places. Uh, you're familiar in, in Psalm uh, 23, right? In Psalm 23 and verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy, chesed, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here we hear, for his chesed, his mercy, endures forever. Psalm uh, 94 and uh, verse uh, 18, Psalm 94, verse 18, if I say my foot slips, thy chesed, thy mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. And Psalm 103, Psalm 103 and verse 8, Psalm 103 and verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. <coughs> and of course, we also find this, in, interestingly, in the, you may recall, in the second commandment, children, you may remember the second commandment in Exodus uh, chapter 20 and verse 5. <clears throat> verse 6, excuse me, verse 6, where God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing chesed, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And also, in Exodus chapter 34, when God says, I'm, says to Moses, Moses, I want to see thee, and, Moses, and God says, I'm going to put you in such a way you'll only see my back parts. And in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping chesed, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, and so forth. So this idea of mercy is a very rich one. Remember, it's almost, it, it, it's got so many different facets to it, so many different ideas. It's not as if it's just one thing or the other. In a sense, it's all of these things in terms of kindness, mercy, compassion, covenant faithfulness. And here in Psalm 136, we are specifically told that that chesed, that mercy, endures forever. It is mercy forever. His mercy is never spent or exhausted. It's like a flowing stream or a waterfall. So I don't know how many of y'all have been to Amicalola. It's one of the tallest waterfalls here in the eastern United States. It's just um, up about an hour, hour and a half or so north of here, Amicalola Falls. And as you start getting close to it, you as you start to approach it, and then you can see it, you can experience it, and it's, of course, all those tons of water just cascading over the waterfalls in an inexhaustible supply. Uh, or Niagara Falls, the same way. You know, you go to Niagara Falls, and you see, you experience the power. Of course, 
you can always dam it up. They've dammed up Niagara Falls at times for a variety of reasons. But with, with God, of course, there is no damming up. There is no way of stopping the flow, if you will. And so it's like a flowing stream or, or like a, a big waterfalls. That's what you have here in terms of his mercy because it endures forever. It's inexhaustible. And so one other thing that you'll note here is that there are several different sections to the psalm. And so today we're going to be looking particularly at verses 1 through 3 in terms of this threefold call to give thanks. This threefold call to give thanks. And so verse 1 starts out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for good is he. Notice the first word, children, of each of these three verses. It's the little word, oh. Oh. And so we sometimes use the word oh, maybe with surprise or or uh, with emotion. It's an interjection. Oh. And of course, why is this? Why, we say, why is the psalmist under the inspiration of the Spirit saying oh, rather than just give thanks? Oh. Well, in order to emphasize the command to give thanks, it sets it apart, it emphasizes, oh, no, not just give thanks, but oh, you, yes, you, oh, give thanks to the Lord. That word for give thanks is yada, which means can mean to confess or to thank or to praise. In First Chronicles 23, verse 30, the priests were those who would stand every morning to praise and to give thanks. In 1 Chronicles 25, verse 3, it's interesting. The word is used with regard to prophesying upon a harp. Um, in other words, it's not simply emotional. It's, there's a confession here. It's joined so that the praise that is offered is not some mindless sort of emotion. No, no, no. When it, he's saying here of, of giving thanks, he's saying do it intelligently. So emotion may be involved, but it's an intelligent thing. It's a thoughtful thing. You're confessing, you're expressing rationally you, as you confess, as you thank, as you praise. Psalm 97 verse 12, give thanks at the remembrance of God's holiness. And so you have this whole idea of thanksgiving, of giving thanks, but it's not simply an emotion. Rather, it is the idea of confessing that, of expressing it in words. So to whom are we to give thanks? We are to give thanks to the Lord. Or we could say Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah. That is to say, the God of the covenant, the one who is the great I am. Remember how God appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush? And he says, I am that I am. I am, the great I am, is the one who is speaking with you, the very God of being. And so the God of the covenant, the great I am, Yahweh, or Jehovah, it's interesting, there are three different words used for God in verses 1 through 3. Yahweh, here in verse 1, which is his proper name, a reference to the one who is self-existent. Then in verse 2, in verse 2, you see where it says, give thanks to the God of gods. That word for God is Elohim, 
which indicates someone who is a judge as well as someone who is all-powerful. And then notice in verse 3, oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. The word there for Lord is Adonai, which emphasizes the fact that God is the governor. He is the ruler. So three different in three verses, three different words are used here for God, Yahweh, Elohim, and Adonai. But here in verse 1, we see, give thanks to Yahweh, to the Lord. Why? For he is good. He is good. Now, as you think about it, you know, when we think about God being good, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that he is goodness itself. Or we could put it this way, he is goodness personified. He is the very essence of goodness. All that he does is good. But, now, children, now if I were to ask you the question, what is God? I'm not going to ask for you to respond verbally, okay, or orally. But you know very well that God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But here's the thing we need to remember. It's not as if God at sometimes is good and sometimes he's truthful and sometimes he's just and sometimes he's uh, all-powerful and so forth. He is all of those things all the time. He is always good. And everything that he does is good even when it is a judgment or an execution of justice. Of course, we'll be getting to that later on in the psalm, won't we? And so this confession, then, that the Lord is good applies universally, applies across the board. All that he does is good. But he especially does good to his people as he protects them while subduing, while conquering his and their enemies. And so give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Secondly, oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. For the psalmist here is not somehow saying that polytheism, that's the idea of belief in more than one God. The psalmist here is not saying that polytheism is true that there, or that there really are other gods. The Bible is abundantly clear that there is one God and only one God. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 6, Paul writes, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. One of the great examples of this teaching that the false, that the other gods of this world are false gods, is when the prophet Elijah uh, opposed the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember what you remember the story? Remember that? And he said, oh, go ahead. We'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a sacrifice here, and we'll see which God is heaven. 
And so throughout the day, what did they do? They, the, the prophets of Baal, the several hundred, were cutting themselves and crying out to Baal, oh, Baal, and so forth. What does Elijah do? Does he, does he say, you know, does, does he say, well, you know, you're entitled to your, to your own opinion, right? I mean, we believe in freedom of religion and all this. No, no, no. What does he say? He mocks them. He makes fun of them as worshipers of a false god. And, as a matter of fact, during that, if you look at it carefully, he says, oh, call a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on a, on a vacation, on a trip. Maybe he's occupied. But in any case, uh, the Bible is abundantly clear that the so-called gods of this world are no gods at all. So, this, when he says, he, when it, when the, here in Psalm 136, when it says he's the god of gods, what he's doing, what the psalmist is doing, is he's showing the superiority over the one, of the one true God above all of these supposed gods that are not real gods at all, but rather are false gods. The phrase also is like what we call a superlative. It's like if you say the best of the best, okay, the best of the best, or la creme de la creme, the cream of the crop, the cream of the cream, okay, and so here he's saying the God of gods. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. And finally in verse 3, oh, give thanks unto the Lord of lords. Now please note that all lordship is rooted in the eternal. For all authority is derived from him, from the eternal God. All authority comes from him. So Whatever authority that you and I have, it's a derived authority. It's a derived authority. We, we're given responsibility. Parents are children. Parents are given responsibility to rule over you. You also have teachers in school. You also have, have uh, elders and pastors and so forth. You have uh, policemen that should be obeyed and so on. And so, but all the authority that we have as humans is a derived authority. The ultimate authority is found in God. But he then is the, he is above, God, the Lord, is above all authorities. He is the ultimate authority who must not be disobeyed, whatever he commands you to do. Just a moment. Whatever he commands you to do, you must obey. And he, furthermore, will call lower authorities to justice, whether they be kings or presidents or prime ministers or governors or mayors or whoever they may be. Those that are lords in a human sense, those that are rulers as mere human rulers who may have some authority given by God for a particular purpose, they, uh, he will call those lower authorities, because he's the Lord of Lords, he will call them to justice. So that if they are not doing what is right, they will be called to account. And he's able to do it precisely because of the fact that he is not only the God of gods, but he is the Lord of Lords. Now I have two points of observation, first of all, before we get to the application. 
The first observation is this. All thanksgiving is God-centered. All thanksgiving is God-centered, and therefore you must direct your thanksgiving to him alone. Now, when I say this, it doesn't mean that we don't express thanks to others. It doesn't mean we don't say thank you. Children, you should say thank you. Older people, you should say thank you. Nothing wrong with being polite. But thanksgiving, as such, is a religious concept. Thanksgiving is a religious concept. And it's directed to God directly. And this is in contrast to at least some of the presidential proclamations on Thanksgiving that we have seen in American history. 1975, a Republican president, Gerald Ford, called on Americans to, quote, reaffirm our belief in a dynamic spirit that will continue to nurture and guide us. What in the world is that? Sort of sounds almost new agey, doesn't it? <laughs> Has nothing to do with the true and the living God. Obviously, maybe it's the spirit of the... Yes, it's false, it's wrong. That was Gerald Ford. In 2009, a Democratic president, Barack Obama, only indirectly made reference to God when he quoted George Washington's 1789 proclamation. See, politicians use the idea of thanksgiving for their own political purposes, but they forget what thanksgiving is all about. So all thanksgiving is God-centered, and therefore you must direct your thanksgiving to him alone. Number two, by way of observation, all thanksgiving must be directed to the one true and living God Father, Son, and Spirit. Only the triune God, and matter of fact, some people even see this, these first three verses as perhaps sort of a, uh, a reference to the threefold nature, the, the three spirit, the three persons of the, of the Godhead. But in any case, only the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And to worship some other supposed god is foolishness and is idolatry. This is why participating in interfaith thanksgiving services and other such services is wrong. It is wrong. Because it puts the true and the living god on the plane, on the same level as these false gods. Just because you worship doesn't mean it's a good thing. Most of the worship that goes on in this world is false. It's wrong. It's wicked. And God despises it. And will punish those people in hell if they don't repent and believe in Jesus. Therefore, we dare not, we dare not bring the holy God down to that level and pretend that he's just like all the other gods these so-called gods of this world. So to worship some other supposed god is foolishness and it is idolatry. God is a jealous god who will not share his glory with another. And of course, the only way to worship God is through the Lord Jesus Christ and by means of faith in him. That's why Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way. The truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. 
We also read today from Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, did you notice what uh, Paul wrote there? First three verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. There's only one true and living God. In verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So all thanksgiving must be directed to the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now two points of application. The first is this. Give thanks for who God is, not merely what he does. Okay? So I want you to think about that just for a second. Give thanks for who God is, not merely what he does. You see, there is a beauty and there is a wonder to God. You know, we see beauty and wonder in creation. The northern lights, children of the northern lights, the aurora borealis, you know what that is? You go up, you, you, you go into the northern parts of this country, into Canada, in a, on a crisp winter evening, you may see the you may see these very mysterious lights, green and yellow and orange, all kinds of them, just amazing, all kinds of displays, these electrical charges in the atmosphere. When my wife and I lived in Wisconsin, the first two years that we were there, uh, we, we saw the northern lights. It's an amazing display. There's a wondrous beauty, but it's mysterious. There's wonder with it. Or think of a rainbow. Think of a rainbow. Think of color itself. Think of dainty flowers. Or how about delicate sea creatures of the deep? Go to the Georgia Aquarium. I love some of those things. <laughs> or even just, you know, that 65-foot wide uh, panoramic view, that big window that you have, millions of gallons of water behind it. I could just sit there for hours, you know. It's just mesmerizing, isn't it, to see all of that. And all of those things then mystify and intrigue and fascinate us. But here's the thing. The things that we see are but a faint hint at the God behind them. They are but a faint hint at the God who made them. And therefore, to know God is to be mystified and intrigued and fascinated by him. He is the very essence of goodness, as, he, as we see here. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Apart from anything he does, he's good. Therefore, give thanks for his very nature. And don't wait, therefore, until you receive a blessing from him. That's the way we act, isn't it? We pray for a blessing, we get a blessing, we say, thank you, God. But we forget that we're to praise God apart from anything he does for us. He is worthy to be praised intrinsically. In his very nature, he is worthy to be praised. 
I want you to think about this on a, on a very practical level, very mundane, very down-to-earth level. You know, if a, if a young man says to his wife, oh dear, I love you because you keep house so well. Well, that, I mean, that's nice that she keeps house well. That's not going to go over very well, right, in terms of impressing her. What does he say, or what should he say? Dear, I love you because of who you are. Not just that you cook me Indonesian coconut beef or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I cook, I, I love you simply for who you are. I love you. I'm intrigued. I'm fascinated as I, as I see you, as I see you walk about, as I see you doing what you do. But I'm, I, as I talk with you, as I commune with you, you see, it's not because of what you do. It's because of who you are. Amen. And so it is in terms of our relationship with God. You know, you remember we, we read we, uh, from First Chronicles 20, verse 21, a few moments ago, in terms of Jehoshaphat. As he was get, it was as he was getting ready to go out to battle, he had the people sing God's praises in terms of these. Uh, oh, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. It's before they went out to battle, before they got the victory, you see, that Jehoshaphat was singing those praises. I think of St. Athanasius, who was such a warrior in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity against those heretics who, who opposed the, the doctrine of the Trinity, Son and Holy Spirit. And he was Bishop of Alexandria, that's in Egypt, he was Bishop of Alexandria in 356, and he was attacked. The church where he was at was attacked, and many people were wounded and murdered. My Lord. You know what the bishop ordered? Be sung Psalm 136. For his mercy endureth forever. And so is that your attitude toward God? You see, we... We, again, we, we, we are so selfish as creatures and so self-centered. I speak to myself here. This is not, don't think I'm pointing fingers here, except just back at myself. Is that your attitude towards God? To give thanks for who God is, not merely what he does. To worship God simply because he's God. Simply because he's good. Simply because he's the God of gods and Lord of lords, apart from anything that he does. Are we willing to have that attitude? Give thanks for who God is, not merely what he does. And then secondly, do give thanks to God for his merciful kindness. Because you see, without his mercy, there would be no hope for us. As a matter of fact, you could even see here how these things are related. Because the, the very fact that the psalmist was able to be stirred up to praise and to see who God is and to praise him, not, not to run away, not to be selfish about it, not to think, oh, I don't, want, I don't really want anything to do with this God other than just being a, you know, someone who gives me things. The very fact that the psalmist was able to have this attitude is precisely because of the mercy of God. And therefore, thank him for his mercy. And thank him particularly because his mercy 
which has been demonstrated at the cross when he poured, when the Father poured out his wrath upon his Son so that we can have salvation. He poured out hell upon Jesus so that we could get to heaven. Thank him for that mercy. Because truly, my friends, that mercy is everlasting. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that by Holy Spirit would take this word and would apply it to our hearts. So give us the ability, Lord, to love thee and to, to serve thee. In Christ's name.